Well, and welcome. Thanks everyone for joining us this week. It's the end of January here in 2022. So one twelfth of the way through the year. Um, it's snowing here in uh, West Lafayette, Brent. I think uh, probably got unforecasted snow today. We probably got the most snow all season. So it's been an interesting year in Indiana for snow. Been a lot of snow to the north and a lot of snow to the south in Kentucky and Tennessee. But we've kind of been in this um, no snow zone. So yeah, we'll see how this plays out, but not a whole lot on the way. So how are things going for you? Good. Um, a little bit windy out today and chilly, but uh, no snow for sure. So the dry part, the dry part yeah, of the year for you. We're in the so. desert. Yeah. <laughs> well, Brent, we were planning out what we were going to talk about today, and there's a lot of stuff that we could cover. Several new articles on the website. I wrote one about some comments I heard about supply chain logistics and the port shipping. Encourage you to read that. Learned quite a bit. Also, an article about global stocks and ending stocks. We measure it on an acre basis. We'll probably talk about this in a future recording, but today's conversation, I think we should spend some time focusing on the macro economy and specifically because the Fed had their meeting earlier this week on the 25th to 26th. And we talked about last time the December meeting was sort of a tone shift. They said, we're going to start to move into this less accommodating uh, period, less stimulating period. And so the stock market had been down a little bit and everyone was kind of wondering what's the Fed going to do in January. And they came back out and they largely, in my opinion, and Brent, you can chime in here, said, you know, we're still moving forward towards raising rates and, and uh, pulling out some of the stimulus they put in the economy from the pandemic and really before the pandemic as well. So talking a little bit about that today. Yeah, it's uh, really interesting. And the date appears to finally be here where they're going to actually raise interest rates. It's been a long time. You can see we've got a chart in the video version where we show the PCE index, which is the Fed's so-called preferred measure of inflation. This is a measure they use to kind of track what they, you know, their perception of inflation is. And you can see, it, you know, the reading is well above 5%. It's the highest we've seen for a long, long time, going all the way back to the 80s. You know, I think this has gotten them a little concerned and uh, it become clear that they're wanting to address the price level inflation that's existing in the economy. I think if there was a, a sentence to summarize, you know, there's a lot of written spoken um, comments, but one sentence that stuck out to me that was emphasized a lot was because of the data on inflation being up and unemployment being down, the Fed felt that it was time for them to, you know, move in a different direction. They're going to move towards raising rates. And so, you know, this is the chart that everyone, you know, thinks about and talks about is the PCE has been above 5% for November and December. And so we're going to start to see this play out and how this, you know, unfolds going into 2022. The right. chart. Uh, well, you know, with, that, with the inflation, I think the, the key thing with the inflation is, you know, the reason I think they're getting a little concerned is they just do not want to get these expectations for higher inflation entrenched uh, in people because, you know, inflation is, uh, yes, it's influenced by money supply and all that kind of stuff, but it's also influenced by human psychology and behavior and people start to believe there's going to be inflation. It tends to, to reinforce it. And then when they're convinced the Fed won't let it happen, we tend not to get it. And uh, I think 
they're at the point where they're starting to become a little bit concerned that if they let it go too much longer, it might start to, people might start to perceive that that's the new rule of the game. And it's super risky to have that because it's once those expectations get changed, it can be very difficult to reel back in. It takes a little bit of shock to do it. And in Fed speak, there was in the past, they've been used, we think expectations about inflation remained uh, are anchored around this long-term 2%. And now the tone in the last few months has been, we want to make sure expectations remain anchored. And so they've kind of shifted that we want to make sure that, you know, people don't start anticipating. Because I think just like we saw in the pandemic with supply chain issues, when you tell people there's no toilet paper, what do they do? They go buy toilet paper. And when you tell people inflation's at, you know, four decade long highs, they start making purchases and they start making plans and they start making, uh, expectations about why I better buy this today because it's only going to cost me more in the future. That's that anchoring piece that you want to be cautious of. Of course, the second piece that they mentioned was the unemployment rate. And I guess I was a little surprised when I pulled this data up. You know, you get familiar with the data, you get caught up in the, the changes. I knew it had been moving in the right direction. I knew it had been sort of very favorably moving in the right direction. But before the pandemic, we had very low unemployment rates. If you're following along the video, you can see that unemployment rates were sort of the lowest that we've seen going back multiple decades. And then we jumped up really high during the pandemic and we've came down very sharply. We're below 5%. I don't uh, know exactly what the current number is, but somewhere around 3%. It's back at those you know, very low levels, some of the lowest levels we've seen in 50, 60 years of data. Not the lowest, but among the lowest. And it's just kind of amazing how we went from the highest among the lowest in a very short period of time. And that's part of the nature of the pandemic and the economic shock we had. Thankfully, we're still not talking about 15% unemployment rates, but this is kind of a rapidly evolving situation on the labor front. It's interesting, these two concepts, because before the pandemic, we had really low unemployment as well as really low interest rates. And, And part of the reason that they could do that is because there wasn't very much inflation. So they say, well, normally when you get unemployment down at these levels, the long run uh, sustainable rate of employment, there's not much incentive to like keep stimulating the economy, but because inflation had been consistently low, I think the fed felt the leeway that say, well, we can continue to juice the economy a little bit even though we know these kinds of levels of unemployment historically have you know, coincided with a little bit more inflation, we're just not seeing it. And uh, it took kind of the supply chain disruption, all that stuff to kind of kick it off. So now that kind of cover of, well, yeah, unemployment's low, but we have low inflation is gone. So it's opened the door for saying, uh, we better uh, increase interest rates. So Brent, there's a couple things going on here. We sometimes get hyper-focused on the Fed and the short-term interest rates. And we've talked a lot in early episodes about short-term versus long-term rates. But I also want to open the door here for you to talk about short-term interest rates. But then the next slide, talk about the Fed's balance sheet and sort of this stimulus that's been taking place uh, on that side and how they're going to start to work through that in the next few months as well. So there's a couple levers the Fed's watching. Right. And so the lever that most people are really familiar with is the Fed funds rate. And uh, I think the Fed funds rate is just, it's just kind of interesting to look at this chart going back to 2000. 
you know, early 2000s, the Fed funds rate was six and a half percent. That seems like an eternity ago through, I guess that would be like the dot-com bubble, fell, dropped it all the way down to 1% and then started raising again about 2005, got it back up to 5%. And then, you know, we had another economic calamity in the housing crisis and uh, we dropped rates in 2009 to zero and kept them there for seven years, seven years, zero, before we started raising them again. And then, of course, the pandemic came in, but we were reducing rates below, you know, before the pandemic. Remember, Trump was give, always giving Powell a lot of grief about we need lower rates, uh, even though the economy was actually going pretty well. And he, he started to do that. You know, the Fed, that's when we were in this deal of, well, we don't have much inflation, so maybe there isn't that much risk of lowering rates. And we did. And then, of course, the pandemic came took them to zero and now it seems like we're back on that cycle and the one thing that's true of these things over at least last 20 years is that once they start raising it it can go on for a while and it usually goes on until until we find ourselves in a in a recession again for one reason or another i mean this last one was pandemic driven so uh just really interesting to look at that over time and look at you know, where we're at today versus even 20 years ago, much, much higher than it is. So the other thing the Fed has been doing, though, uh, because of that Fed funds rate, you know, we went, like I said, seven years at zero interest rates. It didn't really do much to stimulate the economy. The Fed had to use other tools, and that other tool is quantitative easing. And uh, what they basically did was buy lots and lots of bonds in an effort to try and reduce longer-term interest rates with the idea that that was going to increase asset values. And by increasing asset values, it creates a wealth effect. And theory, you know, some of that wealth makes people want to, you know, there's a marginal propensity to spend based on, you know, your wealth. And the idea of you, know, you get wealth theory, you spend a little bit more. It's not nearly as... Um, well understood as a marginal propensity to spend due to income, but it was like the only tool they could come up with. And you can see today, you know, the Fed's balance sheet is just short of $9 trillion. Keep in mind, prior to 2008, it never crossed a trillion. So massive amount of stimulus been put in. And this is the one I think the Fed has got the biggest problem with trying to figure out how to remove that accommodation or what the proper pace of removing it might be. And I think their statement basically said, well, we're going to quit buying stuff. Eventually we're still buying stuff today, but they're going to reduce the pace of purchases. And then with the idea eventually of trying to shrink that a little bit. And that I think is going to be, you know, this was the grand experiment of our time, right? We haven't seen anything like this. I think the unwinding of it is going to be equally as interesting. And right now I would guess the Fed is just hoping that they can increase short-term rates and remove the inflation and not have to do much with this balance sheet. Because unwinding that in the past, you know, in 2019, it caused lots of problems. Uh, in fact, they had to stop doing it and start intervening again, even before the pandemic. Or Trump was, you know, they were selling $50 billion worth of assets a month, which sounds like a lot. But when you think about $9 trillion, you got to do that for years at $50 billion. It's not even going to get you 
doesn't even hardly move the needle. And Trump was tweeting, stop the 50 B's. And everybody's like, what the heck is that? Well, was, the Fed was selling $50 billion worth of securities. And that happened, you know, leading up to that, the pandemic. And they had to quit because the markets were breaking down. So withdrawing this, I think, is going to be the real interesting thing of all of it and has lots of implications for asset values and, and everything else. And it's something we're going to have to watch carefully. So as I listened to the conversation, the press conference, and did some reading and encourage you all to, to do this yourself, and there's always something you can read the headlines, but I think there's always something you can learn when you read sort of the, the Fed statements, um, looking to raise short-term rates. And once to get short-term rates moved up, then trying to get this balance sheet consolidation into some sort of automatic process. And we saw that, as I mentioned, from 2018 into 2019, this idea of we want to sort of roll, let the, the balance sheet roll itself down over time. And so then the active tool that the Fed's going to be using is these short-term rates. But I want listeners to really think about that. There's two tools. There is the active tool that they've talked about with respect to the short-term rates, but then there's this secondary tool that's, I don't want to say passive, it's automatic, right? They want to sort of put it in gear, set it and forget it. Um, they want to hopefully just set it and forget it and let this bleed off over time. But there are two forms of stimulus that have been going on and we get hyper-focused on one of those. And we got to keep in mind that two of these are going to be, you know, it, the tightrope is a little harder to walk than just guessing what should they do with short-term rates. They're managing short-term rates and this balance sheet and the goal of shrinking the balance sheet and getting that in line with whatever the long-run expectations might be. Well, and the, and the really interesting thing is what, just to really know how much that $9 trillion worth of assets on the Fed's balance sheet have, have actually impacted wealth levels. I think it's clear they've impacted them some, but how much is, is the ultimate questions because um, how much might they impact them coming down? And, uh, you know, like I said, it's the grand experiment. And uh, I think um, the answers are going to be in the future sometime and probably a long time in the future because you don't, withdraw that amount of stimulus quickly it's going to take probably a decade to do this and so it's gonna be very interesting so Brent, to wrap this up today's conversation another i think economic uncertainty that we've been hearing a lot about is russia and ukraine and a lot of folks have been asking us our thoughts and um we're gonna do some articles sort of sizing up what the implications are for maybe grain or grain production because Ukraine's a big part of you know agriculture today, global trade. So we'll look at that. The thing that keeps jumping out at me, and I'll mention this and Brent, you can add to it, is we've been looking at the sanctions, the list of sanctions that's been talked about for if Russia crosses the line and goes through with some invasion, whatever that looks like. I think it's always think about the forecast network, it's always hard for us to think about well what's probably a Russia invading Ukraine. Well what does that actually mean, right? What is that's a very hard thing to say definitively yes or no you you know it when you see it right but how do you write the question so that you can actually say yes that did or did not happen but the sanctions seem to be the piece that have caught my attention a lot uh, there's one of them that would kind of effectively cut russia off of the ability to you know participate in 
money exchanges or you know the currency exchanges, which limits their ability to do economic business around the world. So I'll let you share any thoughts that you have on that. But I think the sanctions have been uh, a very interesting piece of that. And I think maybe one of the overlooked implications about how this might play out moving ahead, because the, the sanctions could impact everybody, um, not just Russia. They'd punish Russia a lot, but there are going to be implications for all global partners. Yeah. And, you know, Russia being a major energy producer themselves, having them isolated would be chaotic, I think, to say the least, for a lot of economies around the globe. So it have, you know, I think it has lots of big impacts. And that's, that's kind of like the nuclear weapon of exchange or financial usage to cut them out of that system. So lots of big threats thrown around. And, the, you know, I think the thing you, you mentioned with the forecast network, the thing that has made me think about, uh, just as you said, is, what are the potential outcomes and, you know, Putin might get what he wants, which we don't even really know for sure exactly what he wants, but he, he, there's a lot of ways that he can come out of this without invading, you know, sending his army across the border. And uh, so, you know, I just think there's a lot of possible outcomes here that it's not as simple as does he send the army across or not? And, um, it's a very complex and complicated situation. And I think potentially could have, as you mentioned, just lots and lots of implications for all kinds of commodities and all kinds of trade going forward. So it'd be really important. And it it does seem, I would say I back my probability of like some kind of military action down from what it was even a few days ago, based on, just kind of thinking about the situation probably more carefully and trying to weigh a lot of different sources of information. I think another thing that you talk about the energy is you see Europe kind of really struggling with this, you know, the EU is kind of supposed to work together, but you see these individual countries that might be more or less, you know, susceptible to these energy shocks kind of struggling with how they balance these out. And so uh, I think in time we've seen sort of more, uniformity or more consensus about how these sanctions might play out. And so kind of the line in the sand is getting a little more drawn a little more definitely or a little more clearly. So we'll have to see how that plays out. But yeah, it's a very evolving situation. And I think that uh, we have to keep in mind the range of outcomes could be very, very wide. And I don't think anybody should have a grain marketing plan that evolve around betting which way this thing gets resolved one way or to the other, right? I wouldn't want that to be your marketing plan here. No, you know, this is when, you know, good plans and good uh, measures in place help you still make good decisions. And so let's not try to outsmart this one. Cause I think even if you could guess what the outcome is, you might not be able to guess the specific implications for the market that you're trying to trade. It's a hundred percent, I think, accurate. Sometimes I think about that with the USDA reports. Like if you were given the data before, would you have even traded it correctly? <laughs> you know, it's not, the answer is not always, right? Uh, and I think this is a, even, you know, takes that to a whole nother level. There's just lots of things that could happen here. All right. Well, thank you all for joining us this week, Brent. Thanks for your time. In the meantime, everyone stay curious, update your forecast network questions. And I actually have changed my uh, thoughts a little bit about the interest rate situation. So I encourage you to change your expectations as too. In the meantime, stay curious. We'll catch you here next week. Thanks.